sin of the whole world. There's enough capacity and enough life uh, in the person of Jesus Christ to cover all the sins of all the world of all time. Old Testament, New Testament, people who are not even born yet, God took all the sins of all the people in all the world, put them on Jesus, and he paid a price in order that the sins, the trespasses, the offenses uh, of us toward our God uh, might be covered, might be forgiven. And uh, what a great uh, gift uh, that really is when you think about it. But we also saw last week, if you recall, that um, if our faith, right, is not affecting our everyday lives, if our faith isn't really changing us, if our Uh, confidence in what Jesus did on the cross isn't really influencing our character, isn't really changing us. Peter said, well, perhaps it's because we've become sort of short-sighted, or we would say nearsighted, and uh, Peter says even blinded, uh, we've forgotten the fact that we've been forgiven. So here's what happens. You become a Christian, right, and you discover Uh, that God forgives you of all your sins, and you're so excited, and you give your life to Christ, you invite Christ to come and live in your life, and then you get going, and uh, all of a sudden you find yourself sinning again. And you start focusing on that, wow, you know, I've offended the Lord, I've got the same sin, and I pray and I ask God, please help me get over this and stop it and move on and so forth, but it doesn't happen. And then I begin to feel guilty and I begin to feel shame and I begin to forget, like Peter says, those sins have already been paid for. Why am I so focused here? Why am I allowing the enemy to throw into my face something that God has settled a couple thousand years ago? Why don't I believe that I'm really forgiven? And why don't I live like that? Unburdened and unshackled and released uh, from uh, the condition of guilt and, and, and so on. We've been cleansed from our sins. And so You know, if you're a Christian in that kind of condition, you never really have, like, assurance of your faith. You never can really, like, relax in uh, the truth of God's promise because you're never really quite sure how God's thinking about you right now today. Well, I know I messed up this week. God must be ticked. Or has God already forgiven that? And uh, is God like Jesus said when he told the story of the prodigal son and the prodigal son, and you know, on, on this side of the cross, the prodigal son totally messed up and uh, he was scared to come home and come back to the father. But as soon as the father saw him, the father ran and hugged him and, you know, wouldn't even listen to his confession. The kid had really worked it out. He's like, this is what I'm going to say when I get home and, I'm, and I see dad, I'm going to tell him this and this and this. And the father's like, I don't even want to hear of it. I just want to bless your life. I want to welcome you back into the family. You know, is that the God that we've come here this morning uh, to worship? And so 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17, as Kim uh, read for us, uh, if anybody's in Christ, they're a whole new creation. You're not just the old you with the little adjustments here and there. No, you're a whole new ball game. You're a whole new creation, and the Bible says the old has gone, and the new has come. The old has gone. Aren't you happy about that? I mean, you think about the, the past life that you've lived that's gone, and the new has come, like it's already here. 
uh, this new life that we live with our salvation. And so I want to suggest to you that we're forgiven so that we can be filled. We're forgiven so that we can be filled. We talked a little bit about that last week. And um, so therefore, the gospel is not just about forgiveness. I think sometimes Christians get it wrong. They're like, salvation is all about forgiveness. Well, that's absolutely right, but it's not just about forgiveness. It's also about new life and a whole new, becoming a whole new creation. It's not just about forgiveness. And uh, Paul, we saw in Colossians, says, you know, this is somewhat of a mystery. And a mystery in the Bible is something that's been in the mind of God from the beginning of time, but God waits for the right time to let people know what's going on in his mind. And uh, in the New Testament, we come to this, and Paul calls it a mystery in several places. And the mystery is this, Christ in you, Paul said. Christ not just with us, but Christ in us by the person of his spirit. So the first part of the gospel, the first half is, you know, this wonderful gift of forgiveness, but it's to kind of make us clean enough to be able to be receptive to this new life that God wants to give us. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life. And the life that he wants to give us is actually his life. And he wants to give it to us. And so, you know, beginning in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was given by God to the church, to the followers of Jesus. And uh, the Holy Spirit came into people's lives and uh, changed everything. The gospel changes everything. Uh, Forgiveness is half the message, but this new life that God wants to instill in us is the other half. And that half changes everything. And it's new in the New Testament, right? That the Spirit would permanently come into our lives and stay with us for eternity. Now, in the Old Testament, it wasn't like that. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon different people, right, for different projects and for different seasons, and, uh, and then would leave. And in the Old Testament, okay, if you sinned, like think of uh, King Saul, King Saul, you know, was the first king of Israel, and, uh, and, and then he messed up, and guess what? God's spirit, the Bible says, left him, left him. And then David, remember, came in, and the whole thing between Saul and David and so forth? Well, um, in the Old Testament, see, sin would be a reason why the spirit would leave a person. In the New Testament, uh, it's not that way. Because the Spirit comes, takes up residence, and stays with us no matter what. And so it come, the Spirit comes permanently. There's other people in the Old Testament. Samson. Uh, the Spirit departed out of Samson. Um, you remember King David after he sinned and so forth. In Psalm 51, David's uh, talking to the Lord. And he's saying, Lord, please don't take your Spirit away from me. That sounds strange to our ears because, you know, the Spirit enters into us, and the Spirit stays with us. And so, not true in the Old Testament. So when Jesus gathered his uh, disciples together in, uh, you know, at the Last Supper, uh, he began to talk, well, he began actually before this, but he started to talk about uh, the coming uh, Holy Spirit. In uh, John chapter 16, and uh, verses 5 and 6, here's what Jesus said, but now... 
I am going to him who sent me. I'm leaving. And uh, none of you ask me, you know, where you're going. But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Um, the disciples are learning that Jesus is going to leave them. And they're upset about it, you know. And if you think about that, <coughs> excuse me, it's pretty easy to understand. Uh, Jesus was going to leave, but he has a replacement for himself on the way. Um, but imagine how this hit the disciples. Uh, for three years, Jesus and the disciples were inseparable, right? Uh, they did everything together. Uh, they spent their, the three years of Jesus' ministry uh, all together. I mean, wake up in the morning, Jesus is there. Eat a meal, Jesus is there. You know, uh, got a question, Jesus is there. <laughs> Need a leader, Jesus is there. And now Jesus is saying, hey, I'm leaving. I'm going away. I'm going back to my father. And so uh, the disciples are saddened by that. And uh, I think if you think, if you ask the question, you know, how do you think they felt? Um, uh, I think Jesus already anticipated. He said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to leave you guys as orphans. How does an orphan feel? Nobody wants me, right? There's nobody for me. I don't belong any place. How do I, where do I fit in? What, you know, how do I have a sense of identity? Can you have an identity without it being uh, attached to somebody or something? You know, an orphan is somebody that's all alone, all by themselves. And Jesus says, don't worry, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. He said, I'm going to ask the Father in uh, John chapter 14, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to give you another helper. Uh, another counselor, uh, another comforter, uh, different words that are used about the spirit of Christ that's going to come and dwell in those who are followers of Jesus. And uh, he's going to be with you forever. And then he goes on in the next verse and says, even the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth, that's the spirit that's in us that comes from God, the spirit of truth, right? Uh, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him because he dwells with you, but he's going to dwell in you, Jesus says to them. You've known the spirit's influence on your life up to now, you know, uh, but that same spirit is going to not just be with you, but is going to be in you. And this is huge because it's a, it's a, you know, our Bible is made up of two testaments or two covenants, right? An old and a new. And in the old covenant, you know, God worked kind of from the outside in. Here's a list of rules. Here's, here's a description of who I am. Become like me. Uh, you know, we had all these rules, 10 commandments and so on. And, and you work from the outside in. And then that never worked, right? It never accomplished what God wanted it to accomplish. He wanted his Jewish people to be like him and represent him in the world and so forth. It never happened. And so we have this New Testament, and God said in Jeremiah and other places in the Scripture, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to make a new deal. And in this new deal, I'm not going to work from the outside in. I'm going to work from the inside out. I'm going to work on people's hearts and on people's minds. I'm going to put my spirit inside of their spirit, and the Christian life is going to be lived from the inside out. I'm going to 
love these people and they're going to love me and that love is going to control how they think and how they feel, their minds and their hearts and their will, the decisions they make. And so this new covenant is about a relationship that God provides for us through Christ by putting his spirit into our spirit. And uh, scripture says, you know, that... uh, This spirit is a helper, a comforter, a counselor, uh, designed to take the place of the physical Jesus who was here with the disciples as he began his ministry. And so on the day of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, slips into uh, the followers of Jesus, slips into the church, and promises to be with them forever, which means you and I are never alone. Never We'll never be alone. We always have an identity. We belong someplace. We have a relationship with the living God through his spirit. Um, And just Jesus was with his disciples, but the spirit is going to be in them. And uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the Bible says that after Jesus came back from the dead, he became a life-giving spirit. Life-giving spirit, 1 Corinthians 15. And, uh, you know, when you think about that, uh, really the option before us is that we would, uh, you know, be involved in life-giving living. Jesus became a life-giving spirit, indwells us, so that we can be engaged in life-giving living so that we can take what God has given to us and begin to give it to the people around us uh, that God seeks to draw to himself. Uh, Life-giving living. In in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church, and um, he's praying for the church. And he says, you know, I want you guys to know how I'm praying for you. And in chapter 1 of Ephesians... Um, He says, you know, that I'm praying that you could have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, that we could get to know God better and understand how he operates and what he thinks and what he's up to and how he interacts with us so that we could understand more and more uh, of what that's how I'm praying for this church, Paul says. And then he says this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So Paul is saying, look, a Christian has, you know, four eyes. (laughs) If you think about it, right? Um, We have our regular eyes, which we all think about, but then that the eyes of our heart, that we could see spiritually what's going on, that we could see kind of beyond just what's physical and see the spiritual realities that are lying just beyond the physical realities of our everyday lives. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart could be enlightened so that you could know what is the hope to what you've been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe the same power that brought Jesus back from the dead. So the Spirit you know, that Paul is talking about uh, indwelling in us is given to us so that we could know the hope that's ours, the riches that's ours, the power that's ours, 
all of which is part of the life that Jesus you know, came to give us. And so uh, I wonder sometimes, do we have that new set of eyes that are open that we're able to see past you know, the, the normal things in our physical lives uh, and see to the uh, reality of uh, what's going on spiritually behind these kinds of things? You remember in um, second, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, the Apostle Paul writes to this church, he says a similar thing. He says, uh, <clears throat> this is great, right? You're probably familiar with this. As it's written, um, what no eye has ever seen or ear ever heard, nor the heart of man even imagined, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Nobody can even you know, imagine all that God has prepared for those who really love him. These things God has revealed to us. Nobody can understand, the world can't understand all that God has prepared for those who really love. But these things, the next verse says, God has revealed to us through his spirit. Through his spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, you know. Uh, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also nobody can comprehend the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So here's Paul saying, you know, the whole world can't really understand all that God has. You ever sit down with a non-Christian person, you know, and just sit across the table, have a cup of coffee, and try to explain to them, you know, uh, the heaven that you're looking forward to? Or the forgiveness that you enjoy? Or the peace that's yours? Or the experience of having truth and knowing what truth is and be able to identify what lies, when a lie comes my way because I can... Compare it to something that I absolutely know is the truth. The spirit of truth has revealed the truth to us and so forth. You ever try it? And, and people just don't get it. They just, there's no way that they can grasp it. And that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthian church here. He says, you know, the world can't understand what God's given to us. Because why? Because he's revealed it to us by his spirit, and the world doesn't have the spirit. The spirit is given to the people who uh, have invited Jesus to come and to live in their lives. And so it's kind of exciting when you think about this, but you know what? Sometimes we get so caught up in our, you know, just everyday physical lives that we don't give equal time or thought or energy towards grabbing a hold of the life that Jesus came to give us. I have come that you might have life and that that life might be abundant that that life might be overflowing out of us, that we might be engaged like Jesus in life-giving living. And you'll notice also that, you know, when Jesus or the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, um, it's, he's referred to uh, with the pronoun he. The Spirit is not an it. It's a person. It's the third person of the Trinity. It's the person of God. The Holy Spirit is a person. Uh, who has moved into our spirit. And uh, you might uh, remember, uh, Jesus, you know, has an encounter with uh, Nicodemus. And uh, Nicodemus wants to know what Jesus is all about. And Jesus is like, Nicodemus, you know, you've got to be born again if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God. And uh, Nicodemus is like, well, how can that be possible? And so forth. And Jesus says, well, look, you have to be born of water physically, just regularly like everybody has already been born. And of the Spirit, Jesus says. And, 
in John chapter 3. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot be a part of God's kingdom apart from being born of the spirit because when we're born physically, our spirit, remember, is dead. It's dead in trespasses and sins, right? We have three parts. We have a body, a soul, and a spirit, and our body is alive and our soul is alive, but our spirit is dead in trespasses and it's separated from God. And so unless it's reborn, unless it's brought back to life, and it happens when we become a Christian and that God takes his spirit and puts his spirit in our dead spirit and our spirit comes to life, uh, the Bible, I think, calls it the baptism of the spirit or uh, taking uh, the spirit and putting it in our spirit. Don't marvel, Jesus said, that I said to you, you must be born again. Uh, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes, and so it is with everybody born of the Spirit. We're not quite sure, you know, it's just like the wind. In fact, the word for spirit is pneuma, the same word as breath or uh, wind. So uh, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you know, this is... uh, this is how the spirit works, uh, somewhat of a mystery, as uh, Paul said to the Colossian church. So we end up, uh, when we become a Christian, you know, we end up with a whole new identity. We're a new creation in Christ, a whole new identity. 1 Corinthians 6 says anybody that joins themselves to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It's almost like being married, Right? You get married, you become one spirit. You begin to think the same. You begin to see the same. You begin to influence, right, one another and so forth. That's why the church is called the bride of Christ, right? And, and part of the great uh, future that we have is this giant, you know, uh, wedding uh, reception for the lamb that is talked about in the book of Revelation. Well, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, uh, both written by Dr. Luke, uh, are very uh, spirit-saturated, if you will. Uh, Luke talks a lot about the coming of the Spirit. Uh, As a matter of fact, um, the word is pneuma, uh, the Greek word, and uh, again, it's translated spirit. And uh, 36 times in the Gospel of Luke, Luke uses that word, spirit, and 70 times in the Book of Acts, he talks about the Spirit, because at the beginning of the church is, you know, the birthday of the church was when the Spirit came to indwell uh, the disciples and the followers of Jesus, and that was kind of the beginning of the church at what we call Pentecost. And um, Pentecost means just 50, Penta, and uh, Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection uh, when the Holy Spirit came and entered the church. And this promised gift of the Father, remember Jesus said, um, you know, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the gift uh, of the Father. Don't uh, launch out in ministry without the gift of the Father. And uh, all of the fruits, right, uh, of the abundant life really are uh, the product of the Spirit. Um, We don't have time to do this, but in John chapter 15, Jesus says, look, I'm the vine, you're the branches, okay? And uh, I'll supply the sap, right, that will produce the fruit, but you're the branch that's going to be between me and the fruit. And uh, yes, the Lord produces, the Spirit produces the fruit. And so in Galatians chapter 5, 
Uh, we have an example or a list of, of the different fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. When Jesus says, look, you know, I'm going to give you an abundant life, uh, here are nine marks of what that life's going to do to your life. You're going to increase in love and joy, in peace, in patience, in kindness, in gentleness, you know, and you're going to grow in these because the Spirit is going to produce the fruit but through your life. You're the branch, and uh, the Lord is going to use your life to bear that kind of fruit. And uh, like Jesus said, you know, uh, there is a thief, however, and uh, remember in our theme verse, John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And so it's not like we live in a neutral kind of area. And so Paul writes to this, to the Galatian area there, and he says, you know, the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. There's something in you that resists becoming a more loving person. There's something in you that resists becoming a more joyful person. There's something in us, right, that resists becoming uh, full of peace and being able to give this peace to the next person. Because why? Because the flesh and the spirit fight against each other. And uh, we're all, I think, probably familiar with that, and that's the context in which Paul talks about this. And it's so important to recognize that in ourselves. And so, uh, but still... Uh, in Luke and, and in many places, uh, we're told that Jesus, uh, remember John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but he, Jesus, baptizes with the Spirit. Now the word baptizes, this is a Baptist church, right? So we understand baptism, right? The word baptizo just means immerse. And uh, it was used commercially, like uh, if you had a piece of cloth and you wanted to dye it red, right? You would get some red dye, put it in a bucket. You would take the white cloth, dip it into the thing, immerse it in, and it would come out what? Red. You were dyeing it. So Jesus, when he baptizes us in his spirit, you know, puts our lives in context and surrounds us with that spirit. And when we come up, we're a new creation, we're a different color than when we went in, you know, and we're washed clean, but we're also filled uh, with the Spirit of God. And uh, <clears throat> so um, there's a number of things that we could talk about here, but uh, we're told, for example, in the book of Acts, uh, Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, the first person who died uh, for Jesus in Acts chapter 7, uh, informs us that we can resist the Spirit. This is the spirit of God, but God so has respect for how he made us with free will uh, that you and I can actually resist the spirit. So the spirit can lay his will, God's will on us, and we can say, no, I'm not going to do it. You know? Uh, and go a little further, Ananias and Sapphira, remember them? They uh, sold a piece of property. The early church was broke, and so they sold a piece of property. They bring some money, and they, they say that it was all the money, but they kept some money back for themselves. So they lied to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Pretty dumb thing to do. You know, the Holy Spirit knows everything, and so they died. As an example, you read that, and, and you think, my goodness. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They, uh, the Bible says they put the Holy Spirit to the test, okay? And so 
there's a number of things that uh, help us to understand that this relationship, the spiritual relationship, is a reality that has a profound effect on our everyday living. Uh, God promised a new covenant, not like the old covenant, and uh, communicated it uh, through his spirit inside of us. You know, Romans 12, be transformed by what? The renewing of your minds. Because that's where the spirit wants to camp out, in our minds and in our hearts, to change us in order that he might change everything about us. And so when we study uh, the disciples, it's kind of interesting, right? You take the disciples, they were with Jesus, but now the Spirit is in them. What are the changes that happened in their lives pre and post Spirit? Like before the Holy Spirit came and lived in them versus after the Holy Spirit came and lived in them. Let me just suggest a couple of things. Uh, First of all, they stopped feeling like orphans. They stopped feeling like orphans. They stopped, you know... Uh, oh, poor us, they stopped with the pity party, and instead they gave themselves to the purpose that Jesus had entrusted to them, and they began to serve him with what we might call a joyful perseverance. And uh, you just see it when you read the book of Acts, and you just kind of stick with the disciples and see what happened to them. You know, when Peter and John were told to stop talking about Jesus, you remember what they said? They said, well, if you think we should listen to man rather than God, that's your problem. We're going to listen to God, and God's got a mission for us, and he's got a purpose for our life, and it's to spread the gospel. It's to take this life-giving living and uh, expose that life to other people. And so then, you know, next thing you know, in Acts chapter 5, they get beat up by the authorities, and uh, what happens to them? Are they like, oh man, poor us, you know, we've been beaten up now, poor, you know, let's go wimp out and sit behind a locked door like we used to do? No, they don't do that at all. They get up, you know what? They rejoice, they're, they're so excited, and you know what they say? They say something like this, that I'm so thankful that I'm worthy to be beat up for the cause of Christ. They were like really changed people. Uh, and, and you read this throughout the book of Acts. Then they went on speaking and teaching. It's like the flogging and the warning and the threats made them more determined to uh, eventually, you know, uh, Peter, uh, eventually Peter, who's one of these people, remember Peter, he wouldn't even acknowledge that he knew the Lord right before the cross, remember? Jesus told him the crow's gonna go three times. You're gonna deny me three times before the crow goes off in the morning. And sure enough, it's exactly what he did to some little servant girl, no, I don't know him kind of thing. Uh, but in First Peter chapter 4, uh, after the Holy Spirit comes upon him and so forth, uh, Peter actually writes to people, to us, you know, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Peter was like a totally transformed person once the Spirit. The way he saw life from the inside out was totally different uh, from when he was just with the Lord. Uh, No more pity party, no more, you know, uh, victim, poor me kind of stuff, no resentment and so forth. William Carey is uh, considered the uh, founder of modern missions, right? William Carey went to... um, India in uh, the late 1700s, and William Carey uh, preached the gospel every day 
for seven years without one convert. I say to myself, could I do that? Seven years. Finally, in the year 1800, he had his first convert, okay? So when he was a kid, right, he was young, um, they had a tree in their yard, and the tree had a bird uh, nest, and William Carey climbed up the tree to try to get to the bird's nest to see what was in it, and he fell out of the tree and he broke his leg. And so, you know, he had big cast on it and all of this kind of stuff. Three weeks later, he's climbing up the tree to go get the nest again, right? His mother sees him, has a ballistic fit, you know, and starts yelling at him that you can't be doing this with, you know, and so forth. And um, here's what Kerry said as just a little kid. Uh, When he climbed up, he actually got the nest this time. And here's what he said to his mom. When I begin a thing, I must see it through. That's when he was a little kid. And think about this, seven years of preaching every day and not having a single convert. But when I begin a thing... I have to see it through. And here was that seed, you know, that God used to uh, be able to create this great uh, missionary, William Carey. Uh, a second thing about the disciples is that their weaknesses turned into abilities and uh, supernatural abilities or gifts, I would say. Uh, when the Holy Spirit came on them, uh, they actually spoke different languages. They could speak different languages. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, I'm sure you're familiar with this, the Spirit equips us so that we can do God's will. And these people were in town from all over the place, and they were hearing the gospel in their own language. The word for language in Acts is the word dialectos, which we get our word dialect, and all these different dialects were hearing the gospel in their own language. It was a supernatural uh, miracle. It totally changed the disciples. That experience, I think, changed them a great deal. Um, I I think uh, Peter and John, you know, they walked by this guy who had been lame from birth and had reduced him to a beggar kind of a status, and Peter heals him. And, uh, you know, Peter and John were just Peter and John. They they were no big deal, and all the people are looking at them, you know, and they're like, what are you looking at us for? We're just Peter and John. You know, like peanut butter and jelly. we're We're just us, but, you know, the Spirit dwells within us now. And uh, we have certain gifts, and we can heal, and we can release people. We're, we're, we're into spirit-giving living, you know. And uh, so a third thing, it seems that the timidity of them, their being afraid and so forth, uh, they, uh, you remember, deserted Jesus, and, and then they locked themselves after he was resurrected. They were afraid of the Jewish people and so on. All of that sort of turned into a boldness, where they weren't afraid anymore. They weren't afraid of the Jewish council. When the Jewish people came and confronted them and told them, you know, uh, they'd go toe-to-toe with their accusers. Uh, They had confidence without conceit. They had a confidence in who they were and what their purpose was and what their job was, but without conceit. And uh, I think the Spirit still does that in people today, puts a confidence without conceit that inspires uh, ministry, and uh, it's what happened to the disciples. They knew they were uh, here for a reason. Their self-esteem came as a gift from uh, the one who loved them by the Spirit uh, of God. And then fourth, I would say, uh, you know, um, their reluctance uh, was transformed into confidence. 
remember, uh, again, these guys were afraid of the Jews. They were hiding behind closed doors after Jesus rose from the dead, and now they're out in public preaching uh, to strangers, and uh, Peter and John get arrested, you know, and the leaders interrogate them. And in um, Acts uh, chapter 4, after they interrogate them, the leaders themselves are like absolutely amazed. Do you remember this uh, passage of scripture? Uh, um, Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. It blew them away. You know, Peter and John were like us. We're just common people. We're nothing special. And then they said, but we perceived that they had been with Jesus. And a new spirit came into them. And other people were able to recognize that and so on. So they were changed. Now maybe, uh, maybe my friends from Texas uh, know about this, but um, there was a man named uh, Yates. Ira Yates, his name was. And uh, during the Depression years, Mr. Yates owned a lot of land in West Texas. Uh, I haven't been to Texas, but I understand there's a lot of land down there. And um, not all of it's that great, but there's a lot of it, right? And so this poor guy owned a lot of it, but it wasn't that great. So he had this huge amount of property, um, and he was a sheep herder. And he was trying to feed and clothe his family, and he was living in extreme poverty, even though he had this huge piece of uh, real estate. And uh, he was going to lose everything because he didn't have the small amount of money needed just to pay uh, his bills and taxes and whatever. And um, he was facing bankruptcy. And so uh, all of a sudden, uh, a representative from some oil company came to him and said, would you mind if we you know, drilled on your land? We think there might be oil under your ground. And uh, so Mr. Yates thought, well, you know, I've got little to lose. And um, he said, go ahead. And at a very shallow depth, they found a huge uh, oil deposit, uh, the biggest uh, up until that day in the 30s, whenever it was. It produced 80,000 barrels of oil a day, uh, which I guess is a lot of oil. And uh, overnight, Mr. Yates, Ira, became a billionaire, right? I know, it sounds like the story of the Beverly Hillbillies, right? I mean, it's just, it's, I wonder if it was the basis for the TV program. But anyway, this is real. You can Google it yourself, Ira Yates, and, and you'll read the same thing I'm telling you. So overnight, Mr. Yates becomes a billionaire, or is that really true? Was Mr. Yates a billionaire the minute he bought the land? He just didn't know it. He just didn't know it. He was a billionaire living in utter poverty because he just didn't know it. And Paul says, oh, I pray for the eyes of your heart to be opened so that you can know what's yours in God. Could it be that when you became a Christian, God put himself in the person of his spirit inside your life and that you have everything you need, as Peter says, for life and for godliness. Uh, Paul, when he writes to the Ephesians, puts it like this. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. 
Could it be that we're sitting on way more than we realize? And we just don't know it. Could we be like Ira Yates? So, um, in this same passage in Ephesians, uh, Paul says, you know, be filled with the Spirit, right? Fifteen times in the Bible, uh, we're told to be filled with the Spirit. It's one thing to be baptized into the Spirit and to kind of have that status and have the Spirit move into our lives. It's another thing to live off of that Spirit, to be, allow our Spirit to be filled with the Spirit of God and live off of uh, the Spirit that God has put in us. Be filled with the Spirit, we're told, um, 15 times. And you know what? It's a command, not a promise. We've been focusing on some of the promises that God says, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do the next thing. This isn't one of those. This is a command. You go and be filled with the Spirit. I've put the Spirit in you. I've moved right inside of you. And now you need to fill your life with my Spirit. Well, how do we do that? How, and I'll close with this. How do we be filled with the Spirit? And I want to suggest there's four, I don't know what to call them, pipes that lead directly into our Spirit, okay? Number one, the Bible. You want to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit wrote the Bible, right? The Spirit is the author of the Bible. The Spirit of God moved people to write down the words and so forth. And so when we spend time in the Scriptures, the Spirit of God fills us fills our spirit. There's something about, you know, being in the word and with the word, whether it's at a message like this or in a Bible study that we're, or in our personal devotions, when we spend time with God in the Bible, the spirit of God is released inside of us. And we begin to think and see like the spirit of God, right? Number two, prayer. Prayer is another pipeline to fill the spirit. When you spend time with God, right? When we you know, shut off our phones and shut off the TV and shut off the noise and just get alone with God and spend some time with him and allow him to fill our space with himself. The spirit is enriched and filled and so forth. Third, I'd say that another pipeline into the spirit of God in our life is the church. The church. Other people who are Christians. If, you were, if I were to ask you the question today, if you wanted to find the Holy Spirit, where would you look for him? Well, you know, I've been at church, even your church, here at night by myself. He's not here. He lives in the people. Where do I find the Holy Spirit? Well, when I spend time with people who are also filled with the Spirit... Haven't you had this experience where you're having a conversation about something or another and you kind of sense the Holy Spirit is talking directly to you through that other person? Because why? That's where the Spirit lives. That's where the Spirit lives. And then last, I'd say uh, another pipeline that uh, fills uh, our spirits is obedience. When we know what the Spirit you know, desires or we know what God's will is for us, and we don't do it, it, it just creates interference. It just, it's like the pipe gets squeezed, you know, and uh, all of a sudden the flow, you know, slows down a little because we know where there's dissonance and it's just not happening. And so when we're obedient and we know what the Lord wants and we do it and we see the results, we're even inspired more because God is faithful in the midst of all that he's promised. What a great God we have, you know. Uh, our salvation is not just forgiveness. 
It's also a new life that Jesus came to give us through the person of his spirit. Be filled, Jesus said, with the life that I've come to give you. Uh, Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so uh, thankful that you're our God. You know so much better than us, yet we think we know so much. And uh, here we see in the word that, you know, so many times the Apostle Paul is praying for people to uh, open up their minds and, and to embrace more knowledge about you because you're better than we think. You're more than we think. And uh, you want to give us more than we realize. And so, Father, as we uh, yield ourselves to you and as we learn about what you've done in putting your spirit in us, uh, I think all of us, Father, can probably identify with Mr. Yates and realize that there's more that you have put into us than we're living. And so I pray that you would move us, each of us, Father, to the next level, just one step forward one step closer to being more like Jesus and uh, that we would trust the power that's at work in us to actually change us, uh, to not just know that we have the status of being new creatures, but that we actually are living as new creatures for you and for your glory today. In Jesus' name, amen.